You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananan, Craig, Kenway, Toves, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Deck, Redbeard, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course our quartermasters, Hunter, Samuel, and Adam. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Every military in the world, very nearly every nation-state, has very strict rules about allegiance and loyalty. And, I know, where did he find that little nugget of historical wisdom? Perchance he pulled it from the Library of Alexandria. Or, maybe I found it in the journal found in the cabin of the notorious pirate Captain Obvious. But work with me here. Loyalty. Loyalty builds a strong sense of camaraderie, and it can be used, should your nation go to war, to build an us-versus-them narrative. If, for example, an English person, say a prince, seemed poised to ally themselves with the Nazi party over in Germany, he is branded a traitor, and removed from power. Clap the dust off your hands, no muss, no fuss, that's how it works. That's what loyalty is about. But that's what makes an organization like ISIS, really terrorist organizations in general, but ISIS in particular, that's what made them so worrying. Groups like that call for people to abandon their ties of loyalty. It's cause for alarm when young men from Syria and Iraq begin to slip away to join the new caliphate, but it's, you know, hardly a surprise when that happens. When Muslims from the West see something attractive in that new caliphate and begin to slip away, that's when it becomes a concern. And it gets scary, especially to those in positions of power, when pretty white girls run away to join ISIS, people who were formerly not Muslim. There's a real sense that there's just something alluring or captivating to that new threat, something that those with power just don't understand and likely never will. It's a question of why. Why would somebody abandon the agreed-upon order? ISIS was pretty damn scary on their own, but war in the Middle East is the agreed-upon order. We've all grown used to it at this point. Suicide bombers blowing up mosques, well, that's awful. But it's hardly a threat to global security or world order. 
In that case, you sell a few more planes to Saudi Arabia, clap your hands, no muss, no fuss, that's how it works. But when it starts to get scary, in the case of ISIS, for example, when people who you would not expect to want to go join the caliphate begin to do so, that's when you send an army. And ISIS was pretty firmly dealt with. Pirates, though, often offered that same flavor of terror to those in power. I mean, when it's just a few drunks on rickety boats, it's not a major problem. Let them raid the Spanish. It's not our problem, that's the agreed-upon order, and we can sell a few more cannons to shipowners. When there seems to be a movement growing, that's when it becomes a concern. You see that with the Malay pirates, and the Greco-Roman pirates, and of course, the Golden Age pirates. In Rome, there was a Mithraic cult that was terrifying. It kept kidnapping and occasionally sacrificing Roman aristocrats. With the Malay, it became an independence, anti-imperialist movement. And in the case of the Brethren of the Coast, they were proto-democratic. And that's how all of those organizations became a threat to the agreed-upon order. That's when you send Pompey Magnus out to deal with them, and basically create the Byzantine Empire. That's when you draft legislation that allows for extrajudicial executions, as they did in 1683. And when pretty white girls start leaving home and wearing boys' clothes and joining the pirates, well, that's when you send Woods Rogers. At the end of the Buccaneer era, the powers of Europe, primarily France and England, turned the Caribbean into a militarized zone. They did so in an effort to oust the growing pirate threat and to keep the peace there in the West Indies. After all, slaves and sugar were the way of the future, and that's good for business, which is, of course, good for everybody. Anybody who dissented to this idea or attempted to cause any trouble were rabble-rousers, and they were eliminated with the utmost prejudice. So the pirates, who were still alive, left. They left the West Indies to go everywhere else. Now, that actually happened twice, but we're at the cusp of the first of these, well, I don't know what to call it, but a pirate diaspora. At first, they were simply running, running from the law that very much wanted to see them dead. But then those English privateers no longer had ties to English colonies. They had to make a decision. They could settle down and try to start a life with the threat of execution constantly hanging over their head, or they could become pirates. Which is, in many cases, what they did. They cut those ties of loyalty because they were given very few other options by the state. We're witnessing the moment that all of that began to spread, and it spread from disgruntled sailors of a prominently European and Protestant background to sailors and slaves and servants and dispossessed people from all walks of life from all around the world. We're seeing Malay pirates and Spanish people, and we're about to see more and more people of Native American and African and East Indian and Asian descent. We're going to see them join up with the pirates and become part of this movement that had the power to shake the agreed-upon order. We're watching the dawn of this movement through the eyes of the crew of the pirate ship Signet. This is episode 136, This Mad Crew. 
The crew of the pirate ship Signet was growing surprisingly quickly. From the crew that left Mindanao back on the 14th of January, somewhere around 90 people, they gained a crew of Malay pirates under Assam. Now those Malay pirates appear to have climbed aboard Signet, but their bark may have been along for the ride too. That added maybe 15 pirates that had intimate knowledge of these seas and Spanish shipping. Then on the 4th of March, the pirates captured Arnzazu and took her crew captive, quote-unquote. That was our whole discussion last time, whether or not that Spanish crew willingly joined up. Were they unwilling galley slaves to the pirates, or were they active participants? It's hard to say with so many contradicting sources, but I'm going to err on the side of Arnzazu being willing participants and outright pirates. And that brings the total of the crew up to maybe 120 pirates. They had two small frigates and perhaps a bark for a ship's boat. Each of these vessels may have had their original crews on board. Just three friendly pirate vessels roaming around in league with one another. Or perhaps the three crews integrated. Normally that would be unlikely. However hard I might want to push the power to the people narrative, national and racial boundaries were still very strong. On most buccaneer fleets, you would have French ships with their own leader and English ships with their own leader, and usually whoever had the more was in charge. Here, when we're dealing with a ship of English pirates and a ship of Malay pirates and a ship of Spanish pirates, very likely they would have stayed on their own ships with their own power structures in place. Except in this case... In this case, it would make perfect sense for those crews to integrate. And that's for the purpose of subterfuge. Should they run into the authorities in the region, it would look odd to have an English ship accompanied by a Spanish ship accompanied by a Malay ship. However, if there were a few Malay men on board each of the three vessels then they would look like servants or slaves, which, of course, is part of the agreed-upon order. More practically speaking, if you had a few Malay pirates on board each of the vessels, they could act as navigators. As I said, they knew these waters. And, of course, they were in the Philippines, which were named for Philip II, former king of Spain. This was Spanish territory, the westernmost expanse of Nueva España, and they had 25 Spanish sailors who knew maritime trade as it should be practiced in these waters like the back of their hands. Spanish sailors who very likely had Spanish flags and Spanish outfits and, of course, spoke excellent Spanish. Spanish sailors who could, should they run into those authorities, pose as officers. Malay men as their subjugated servants, and then 80 or so English, Irish, and Dutch pirates who knew the art of capturing Spanish booty like no other. It was, if that were in fact how the crews broke down, and I'm not certain that it was, but if it was, that's the perfect cover should they run into the Spanish. It's the perfect disguise should they happen to sail into some Spanish port somewhere with larceny on their mind. Their next destination was Manila. Now their plan was not to sail into Manila, to bombard the city and sail away with a treasure galleon. I mean, don't get me wrong, that would be great, but also impossible. No, their plan here was twofold. 
First, to take a survey of potential targets they might capture in the future, and to make contact with an agent they had in the city. I call him an agent, but he wasn't an undercover operative. He wasn't a spy. He was a legal resident of Manila that a few members of the crew happened to know. Three or four years back, the surgeon on board Signet, Herman Coppinger, sailed to the Philippines on board a legitimate merchant cruise. On that same voyage, another sailor, an Irish surgeon named Mr. Fitzgerald, met and married a local Philippine mestiza woman. Now, he stayed there in Manila. He opened up a surgery, and he settled down. And we should remember that he was an Irish Catholic, so he was more welcome in Spanish territory than any of the Englishmen would have been. It appears that Herman Coppinger, on that previous voyage, served as surgeon's mate under Mr. Fitzgerald until Mr. Fitzgerald found a wife and settled down, at which point Mr. Coppinger took up the position of surgeon. I picture the pirate's plan, if this were the expository scene in a heist movie, something like this. The Signet and the Malay Bark were to find a lonesome island somewhere on which to careen their ships. Aranzazu, a known ship with all the proper credentials, would sail boldly into Manila Harbor. There she would dock with her Spanish crew, along with a few Malay men, including Assam, and two Englishmen, William Dampier and Herman Coppinger. Those two could pose as Irishmen. They were well-dressed, clearly educated, fluent in Spanish, and exactly the sort who might hitch a ride on a Spanish merchant vessel to visit their fellow Irishman and man of science. We can imagine the potential run-ins and close calls. We can imagine our heroes talking their way out of it, or bribing the officials. And we can imagine them finding their contact there in Manila, probably played by Michael Fassbender and convincing him to come out on one last mission. We could even imagine something like Mr. Fitzgerald's wife having been killed by corrupt Spanish officers, and we can imagine his lust for revenge. We can picture, if we so choose, a sword fight, a dashing duel. We can imagine a carriage chase. We can almost hear the epic soundtrack, and we can see the Tarzan-style series of rope swings from ship to ship, slicing the needed ropes on one ship across the water to the next until they reach their ship signet for a dashing escape. Or we could imagine another scenario. And the problem with all of these contradicting accounts is trying to discern honest motivations. There are those who tell us that Dampier was acting as an insidious pirate captain. Others, Dampier mostly, paint a very different picture. He writes, quote, Herman Coppinger went ashore, intending to live here, but Captain Reed sent some men to fetch him. I had the same thoughts, for neither he nor I when we were last on board at Mindanao, had any knowledge of the plot that was laid to leave Captain Swan and run away with the ship. And, being sufficiently weary of this mad crew, we were willing to give them the slip at any place from whence we might hope to get passage to an English factory. End quote. Now that was written years later, written in a book that was intended to impress a bunch of English scientists, trying very hard to avoid trouble and hopefully to gain a further career in exploration. Should we trust that? Should we trust Ramirez's account from last time, 
Could we trust the alleged mafioso when they plead their innocence? And as with most things, it's complicated. Personally, I think that both Dampier and Coppinger were fully aware of the piratical intentions of their ship. At the very least, Dampier was. However, I think that they very likely did want to leave the crew at some point. Perhaps that was their plan from the beginning, but they realized they had to leave Mindanao first. I like to imagine Dampier and Coppinger planning some sort of double-cross there in Manila. I imagine a plot in which they were to sell out their new pirate friends, and even to cross their English pirate crewmates, in a bid to start a new life in Manila. They've got a crew of Spanish dissidents, those who had abandoned their loyalty, those who had abandoned the agreed-upon order, out there in the harbor right now. There's a bunch of Malay men on that vessel, as well as on the Signet, an English ship stolen from the rightful captain in Mindanao. They could name the names of those who were there unwillingly, Josiah Teat and his ilk primarily, and tell the Spanish that they were duped into what they were forced to do. But the rest of those, the pirate contingent among the crew and the Spaniards and the Malay men, would all soon be in shackles. Think about it, though. That would get them in well with the authorities there in Manila. Dampier and Coppinger already had a small nest egg in Spanish gold dust stashed away, Potentially, they could join up with Mr. Fitzgerald's surgery. Dampier was no doctor, but he was a learned man and could surely find something useful and profitable to do with his time, perhaps translating Spanish works. Now, William Dampier was married. So what about Judith, back in merry old England? Well, hiding out in Manila could solve that problem as well. Judith would likely never know what happened to her husband. She would assume that he had died at sea, and any decent middle-class woman, as Judith was, would certainly be able to find a new husband. Meanwhile, Dampier and Coppinger would be able to buy a cute house in their new tropical paradise. Perhaps Dampier could manage their surgery, and Dampier and Coppinger could live together as roommates and very good friends. They would already have been pretending to be Catholic, and any inconsistencies in their behavior would likely be chalked up to being Irish. Yep, just a couple of arrow-straight Irish Catholic bachelors living in the Philippines. I like to imagine that as kind of a happy ending for those two. It certainly would have been happier for them, and it would have been much happier for those who would go on to suffer at the hands of William Dampier. And we can imagine that happy ending all we like, but it would not come to pass. We can imagine that dashing roguish tale from earlier all we like, but that would not come to pass. The Manila mission never took place. On their way to Manila, the pirates met a storm which blew their little fleet off to the west, into the Philippine Sea. Now this was to be expected. All of the wind was blowing in a westerly direction, but there was no good way to turn around at the moment. Remember, that's the entire reason that the crew, led by John Reed in particular, was so keen to leave Mindanao in the first place, these westerly winds. The Signet and her two accompanying vessels left the Philippines and headed for mainland Asia. So here we need to talk a bit about mainland Southeast Asia. That mainland Southeast Asia is the preferred nomenclature for the region, but you might also know it as Indochina. 
and that term has connotations of imperialism. European imperialism, yes, but also Indian and Chinese imperialism. Generally these days it's frowned upon, but as a descriptor of the region it's not tremendously inaccurate. Mainland Southeast Asia has for centuries been a cultural crossroads for those two powers. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Now I assure you I'm going to keep this brief, but we do need to go back to the dawn of civilization. When we talk about the rise of civilization, which is to say agriculture and writing and religions, organized religions, and laws, usually people talk about three distinct regional civilizational revolutions. First we have the cradle of civilization in what we would consider the Middle East today. Then we see the rise of the Indus Valley civilization in modern India, followed very shortly by the rise in Chinese civilization at the Yangtze and Yellow Rivers. Now that's not to say that there were not human beings living vibrant and meaningful lives elsewhere, but basically they didn't have writing yet. And later there would be subsequent revolutions in sub-Saharan Africa and the Americas and Europe, and even here in Indochina, but in many cases, the Americas excluded, they were influenced by one of those big three. Indochina, or mainland Southeast Asia, was right in the middle of the Indus Valley and Chinese civilization. The whole region was, and is today still, a lush and fertile region. Now the indigenous people living there, and there were a ton of them, they had a wide variety of languages and religions and lifestyles. But they didn't have organized religion or written law, or the written word. 
that, and thus the rise of what we consider civilization, came from invaders. As India and China grew, they took notice of the region as a lush and fertile place. They began moving in, only on the fringes at first, to the northwest and the northeast, then Alexander the Great and the Cradle of Civilization came crashing into India. Almost immediately following that, Chandragupta gave rise to an Indian empire that stretched into modern-day Myanmar. Now Myanmar, also known as Burma, was the doorway into which all of Indian civilization reached mainland Southeast Asia. Buddhism, Hinduism, and Islam all came marching through that Myanmar doorway. Now over to the northeast side of mainland Southeast Asia, there was a Proto-Vietnamese civilization, situated almost right up to China. That civilization remained mostly independent. Over a couple of thousand years, they would trade territories with the Chinese, but doing so also traded culture and influence. This Proto-Vietnamese people gained the Chinese style of pottery and Chinese styles of rice cultivation and the written word. Though they also influenced China in their own style of the written word, but most prominently in Buddhism. So you have these two kingdoms, Myanmar and Vietnam, that are the largest political powers in mainland Southeast Asia, influenced primarily by India on one side and China on the other. But then you have this host of smaller city-states dotting the region. There are those who would argue that the rise of Greece as a single political and cultural entity came together because of outside pressures, Persia mainly, but also the strong arm of Alexander. What we would consider Thailand, and thus the lands of modern-day Laos and Cambodia and southern Vietnam, well, that was forged in a similar fire. Instead of Persia and the Roman Empire, it was India and the Chinese, and many of those city-states in Southeast Asia were comparable to the likes of Athens or Sparta. They had relatively powerful militaries. They had their own philosophical thought. They had writing and agriculture and laws and religion. They had everything that one needed to be a civilization, but they didn't have that second step to what people considered civilization at the time, an empire. But then... Around the early to high Middle Ages, right around the 10th century, we see a rise of a people called the Thai. Now the Thai were distinct, culturally and linguistically, from the people of the rest of mainland Southeast Asia. However, they began to spread into the rest of the region. They started taking over city-states. However, the Thai weren't necessarily unified. By the height of their rise to power, they had split primarily into two separate states, the Kingdom of Angkor and the Kingdom of Ayudha. Respectively, Angkor was the forebear of what we would consider Cambodia, and Ayudha the forebear of Siam, of course, later known as Thailand. Now the rise of the Thai chased out most of the indigenous Malay people, into the most southern reaches, the Malay Peninsula, and into modern Indonesia. So there we have five major powers in place. Myanmar, Vietnam, Thailand, Cambodia, and Malaysia. What we would consider Laos was still mostly unaffiliated, but was usually influenced mostly by one or another of these powers. But then as the 
Middle Ages gave way to the early modern period, Europe once again came crashing into Asia. This time they did so on ships rather than chariots, and it was far more damaging to the region. It was those Europeans that gave the name Indochina to mainland Southeast Asia, but that's actually still anachronistic to our story. The term Indochina did not come around until much later, the 19th century. Dampier never uses it in his work. Instead, he mostly uses names that we would recognize today. Which only makes sense. These were English colonial names for countries and kingdoms that had their own names. Dampier tells us that he and the Signet were headed for Cambodia. And that was accurate at the time, but the island on which they landed was called Pulo Condor. Now that was a Cambodian name, but today it's known as Khan San, off the southeast coast of Vietnam. As an aside, and this is something we'll likely have to talk about more in the future, but at this very moment, King Louis XIV of France was hosting an entourage of Siamese diplomats. An entourage that would lead to an alliance and a French interest in Indochina. In fact, due in very large part to Dampier's findings here, this island of Pulo Condor, or Khan San, would host an English East India Company in just a few years. However, that outpost only lasted for three years. That was due to a joint French and Siamese intervention. The Siamese and their French allies were attempting to ensure that no European powers would gain a colonial foothold in the region. Of course, that French intervention is why that Cambodian island is today Vietnamese. However, that's all in the future. Some of it in the near future, much of it in the very, very great future. For now, though, you all should know everything there is to know about Southeast Asia, with no generalizations or blind spots or inaccuracies, and we can move on. Signet's stopover at Pulo Condor was something of a turning point for the crew of the Signet. They spent a number of weeks there, and Dampier tells us all about the place. He spends a lot of time describing the natural harbors and the geography. He talks about verdant fields and rice paddies and rocky hillsides. He describes the wild mango, and, East India men take note, the uncultivated nutmeg. You can see why the English might put a factory there. Dampier describes the language and the politics and the trade, and he describes the prostitutes. In short, William Dampier describes the civilization of the place. The pirates, though, really liked the prostitutes of Pulo Condor. They all seemed to have enjoyed their time to the fullest there. But I should say that these women were not sex workers in any traditional sense of the word. Rather, they seemed more like hostages, almost. Maybe better described as bribes that were sent to the pirates to ensure their good behavior while they're at the island. Dampier writes, quote, they are so free of their women that they would bring them aboard and offer them to us. Many of our men hired them for a small matter. Most of our men had women aboard all the time of our abode there. In Africa, also, seamen that reside there have their Delilahs. It is accounted a piece of policy to do it, for the captains have great men's daughters offered them, or even the king's wives. 
by this sort of alliance, the country people are engaged to a greater friendship. End quote. I ended that quote just a bit early. I wanted to continue on with it, but it's filled with a bunch of language and racist imperialism that I'm not tremendously comfortable with. However, I will tell you the gist of what Dampier says. He tells us that those Delilahs worked to keep the peace in the following fashion. Whenever the locals were planning some sort of violence against the pirates, in reality it was probably revenge, but Dampier paints it as barbarous treachery to which these people are accustomed, but whenever violence was imminent, these Delilahs, who, as Dampier explains, obviously knew the superiority of white men, Whenever that violence was imminent, the women would tell the Englishmen, or the French or Dutchmen, about it. And perhaps that did happen on occasion, likely because the women on board knew that the pirates had the military capability to kill all of their husbands and brothers and fathers. What Dampier doesn't mention, and I presume probably never took into account, is that while these women were one part distraction and one part bribe, they were also one part spy. If the pirates were there planning any sort of violence, these women knew about it and would be able to warn their people. And one cannot argue the effectiveness of that strategy. Now I would note that when Dampier talks about Africa, he's talking about the pirate colony at Madagascar. That's a place that Dampier has yet to see, but he's going to before returning home and writing his book. Of course, William Dampier did not partake in the enjoyment of these Delilahs. He was a happily married man, after all. Instead, Dampier was engrossed by the temples and the carvings of elephants and horses and Buddhas he found there. And, you know, he should be. That part of the world is home to some of the most impressive religious architecture in all of world history. So we have this picture, painted by Dampier, of a science-minded man who's exploring temples and fields, all in the interest of gathering information for England. All the while, the pirates, of whom Dampier was an unwilling companion, debauched themselves with women and wine which they paid for through plunder. It's a striking image, if probably deeply inaccurate. What Dampier neglects to mention, though, is how those pirates came by that plunder. You may remember, back in Mindanao, that most of these men chose to turn pirate because they didn't have any money stashed away. That's the strongest argument that Dampier makes toward he and Mr. Coppinger being unwilling participants. They did have a little bit of money. But here we see the pirates flush, gambling and drinking and renting the services of local women. One might assume, well, you know, piracy? But the Signet was currently ashore. Most of the crew of Signet, when they weren't otherwise engaged, were busy careening her. They were cleaning and repairing and refitting the ship, and this was a big undertaking here. They made Signet a pirate frigate that Blackbeard himself would have recognized. This took time. But that leaves the Aranzazu as their primary vessel, and Aranzazu was captained by none other than William Dampier. Naturalist, writer, gentle soul, William Dampier, currently commanding pirate raids, raids against a host of peaceful vessels all across the South China Sea, 
and that is according to nearly everyone that was there, except for Dampier, including Ramirez and Assam. Now, most of what they took were local ships, regional ships at least, Vietnamese or Cambodian, Siamese, a couple of Philippine ships, and even a Chinese junk. Now, the junk was their biggest haul, but none of their prizes were fabulously rich. However, they were satisfying. Anyone who sailed with Dampier brought back a little something valuable. Maybe a few pieces of silver or some silk or spices or dyes, but more than that, those crews brought back wonderful culinary treats. I mean, imagine that you've been scrubbing at a hull all day in the very hot tropical sun. You're looking forward to retiring with your Delilah for the evening, but then, on the horizon, Dampier shows up, and he's got rice wine and mangoes and a succulent pig and exotic spices. Perhaps he even kidnapped a cook to cook it for you. Likely they didn't need to, the locals had cooks of their own. But suddenly, this evening turns into a party. There's music and there's dancing and there's dancing girls. And who is to thank for all of that? Was it Captain Reed, the man who had you working in the hot sun all day? No, it was William Dampier. And the crew was very aware of that. Anyone who made any money in this time sailed with Dampier. Anybody who had a good time in this time did so thanks to Dampier. Captain Reed probably condoned, perhaps even ordered Dampier to do this to keep the crew happy. But around this time, things took a turn for the worse. And the problem lay almost entirely in the figure of Captain John Reed. Reed was not a good captain. He was kind of dumb, he was very egotistical, and he appears to have been racked with insecurities. But he played to the baser instincts of his crew, he manipulated their own insecurities, and he exploited their fears. And sadly, that group, the group that was loyal to John Reed, held the majority. What I consider the sensible members of the crew didn't have the power to vote John Reed out as captain. Dampier and Coppinger and Josiah Teat, maybe a dozen others. They didn't have any power among the crew, but they were unhappy with this state of affairs. And you might remember back, back to when a number of these pirates, including Dampier, took part in the first Pacific adventure. They ran into this very same problem. Captain Sharp was a terrible captain. He led them to disaster after disaster because of his own egoism and a minority of the crew dissented to his having power. However, that minority, in that case, had another ship, a ship that they could and did take to leave him behind. Now, here in the East Indies, they had that same thing. They had Signet and they had the Malay Bark, but they also had the Aranzazu, a seaworthy vessel that could get the dissenters home, or at the very least to a safe English harbor. Of course, Aranzazu did not technically belong to Dampier or his faction, but when did that ever stop the pirates? If they did have a plan to leave the crew of Signet behind, they had the ability to do so. But at the moment, they were in the extreme minority. Most of the crew was eager for action and plunder, because they wanted the money, sure, but also the excitement of it. I mean, at this point, Signet was one of the best pirate ships in the world. 
Not only that, they had a bark and another frigate. They had the makings of a fleet that would be a terror on the high seas, which is something every pirate or potential pirate wants to be a part of. And John Reed was their admiral. However, John Reed made some bad decisions here. Dampier tells us that they left the ship they took at Manila, the Aranzazu, there at Pulo Condor. They just left it there. Maybe they gave it as a gift to their hosts for all of the generosity, and on the one hand, that does kind of make sense. Now that the plan to infiltrate Manila had been botched, and the signet was up and running, they did not really need the Aranzazu. They could use just the signet and their bark. That was sufficient, but I think that Reed's reasoning was a lot more selfish and grim than all of that. I think that Captain John Reed, full of faults as he was, probably wanted to secure his command. And that's why he made the decision to leave Aranzazu behind. He cut off their escape route and made sure that there was no captain other than him on the voyage. I mean, think about the success that Dampier enjoyed while Reed was busy careening. He had more prizes and more victories under his belt in a mere few weeks than John Reed had had in his several months as captain. To an insecure person, Dampier would look very much like a threat. And if Dampier had his own ship and his own command, the crew might see him as a valid replacement for captain. And I think that informed not only the leaving of Aranzazu behind, but I think it informed Captain Reed's next big decision. Signet had a Cambodian guide on board who was leading them toward the Gulf of Siam. And they ran into a few ships out there, but according to Dampier, they didn't attack any of them. They got directions, or traded, and they sailed on in peace. This kind of makes sense, but it also looks a bit weak on the part of the captain. But then, Captain Reed spotted a Malay ship in the distance and he ordered the pilot of Signet to set a heading to capture that next big prize. But Assam, the Malay pirate, objected. This pirate who operated in the region, who knew his business and who knew the people, told Captain Reed to leave that ship alone and to sail on. Attacking her was a bad idea. But there's a problem. Assam probably did not speak much English, and Captain Reed didn't speak much Spanish. That means that Assam would have had to talk to Dampier to voice his objection, and that means that Dampier would have spoken to Captain Reed. Think about what that looks like. It looks like Reed made a bold and potentially profitable decision to attack that ship. Dampier, his chief rival, told Reed to leave it alone. If you are a captain insecure in your command, a captain who maybe thought that Dampier was trying to steal the command by stealing all the glory... If you were a captain who was too stupid to listen to the local pirate, well, that was just unacceptable. Captain Reed ignored the advice and set a heading for the Malay vessel. Dampier tells us, quote, Captain Reed sent a canoe aboard her. It was a Malayan vessel, the men desperate fellows, whose vessels are commonly full of those who all wear cressets or little daggers. The crew went aboard, all but one man that stayed in the canoe. The Malayans, who were about twenty of them, seeing our men all armed, 
at once drew out their cressets and stabbed five or six of our men. The rest leapt overboard and so got away. Daniel Wallace leapt into the sea who could never swim before nor since, yet now he swam very well before he was taken up. End quote. So Captain Reed sent a canoe over to judge the situation. He sent men aboard who were immediately, some of them, stabbed to death and the rest forced to flee. Now think about how that looks. Dampier, popular and successful Captain Dampier, warned you not to attack that ship, and he turned out to be right. Now six of your men are dead, and it's all your fault. Of course, Reed attempted to pursue the Malayans and get his vengeance, but they escaped. They got ashore and into the jungle, so Captain Reed failed once again. This is the event that really opened up a rift in the crew. All of those men who had been eager for plunder and glory began to see that perhaps Captain Reed was not the man to give it to them. To make matters even worse, among the sensible faction, they had news very recently. One of those ships that they had stopped to trade with a few days prior told the crew of an English factory on Sumatra. Now that was an outpost that the English had no knowledge of until that very moment, and it was relatively close. They could get there. That was, for the crew who did not want to be there any longer, a way out, a way home, a way to escape this life with this mad crew before they were caught or killed, before they were lost at sea in one or another of the terrible storms, before any of a thousand terrible fates befell them, that was a way to escape. For those who were indisposed to being outright pirates, or at least didn't trust Captain Reed, that was salvation. The quote I read earlier, Being sufficiently weary of this mad crew, we were willing to give them the slip at any place. It was about this moment here, that's when it becomes relevant. This is where that incident took place when Coppinger tried to escape and was brought back by force. He was trying to escape, and Dampier wanted to go with him to escape to Sumatra, which would get him home to England. And they weren't alone in that. After this little incident with the Malay vessel, a lot of the crew wanted out. But Captain Reed had other plans. He recaptured Coppinger, he reasserted his authority over the crew, and then he set a course in exactly the opposite direction, away from the Gulf of Siam and away from Sumatra. He set a course back to Manila. Next time, these tensions will reach a head, and William Dampier, Herman Coppinger, and the rest of the crew will be left with a choice. And we're going to bring this story to a conclusion. Not an end, the story of William Dampier is not going to end for a long time yet, but this chapter will end. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show, everyone who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has signed up through the website to support the show, everybody who has left us a rating or a review, everybody who has recommended this show to your friends and family, Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com 
or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.